You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hello, this is Dan Linna. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guest today is Casey Flaherty, the Director of Legal Project Management at Baker McKenzie. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge. Thanks to you, Thomson Reuters. Casey, so you just joined Baker McKenzie. Can you uh, tell us what your role is going to be there at Baker McKenzie? Uh, I'm going to be the director of legal project management. As far as I know, I will be the head of the largest legal project management function in the world, and we're going to grow it. Uh, so it's very exciting for me. I'm really happy to be at the firm. As you well know, or if you follow the news, I didn't go alone. Uh, so David Cambria, the godfather of legal operations, led the way, uh, moving from ADM over to Baker McKenzie, and then he he brought me and Jay Um with him. Uh, if you haven't read Jay, uh, she's the most brilliant analyst working in uh, legal, and so basically my plan is to uh, be successful by association. <laughs> uh, I figure if I get in with David and Jay, everything's going to work out whether or not I'm good at my job. Although I do plan on being good at my job. <laughs> okay. You know, before we could do a little bit of a deeper dive, like what you'll be doing at Baker McKenzie, can you just kind of, for our audience members who, who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about your, your background, your legal career up to now? So I used to be known as the Kia guy. I was a lawyer. I, out of law school, went to a large firm as a complex commercial litigator. I liked it. I then moved in-house at Kia. Uh, where I gained some notoriety for my approach to outside counsel management. Uh, because while I, as much as I loved my large firm and the people that I worked with were brilliant, I was convinced that a lot of the processes they worked in were broken. And that made me sad that you had these very smart people working extremely hard. And yet there, were, there, there was so much friction in what they did. It was so inefficient that you were, you were wasting valuable time of valuable people. And so when I went in-house, there were lots of things I didn't want to pay for. I didn't want to pay for friction. And I, I had to figure out a better way to talk to my firms about legal service delivery, because most of what you traditionally talk to firms about is who does the work, as opposed to how the work gets done. But here's the thing, who does the work is really stable. You hire great lawyers. And so the big questions aren't, should you or should you not hire great lawyers? Because the answer is, yes, of course you should. The big questions, uh, especially when you look at scale or you look over long enough time horizons, is how can you leverage 
that, that expertise through process and technology. And so that was my focus is how to have different kinds of conversations. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that, working on that, eventually turned it into a guidebook for the Association of Corporate Counsel entitled Unless You Ask. And that's really the crux of it. I would go out to my law firms and talk to them about legal service delivery, but only after I'd done a site visit. So I, I know you're uh, very much into lean and really, really want to start talking about uh, the Toyota Improvement Kata because nothing makes you happier. But so I would go to Gemba, right? I'd do a Gemba yeah, walk. Yeah. I would sit. I, w- I would do site visits at law firms uh, and sit with legal professionals, lawyers, and staff, and just watch them work. Uh, I'd be armed with my billing data. I, so I knew who was doing what, and I would ask them, okay, how do you do that thing that you keep billing me for over and over again? And just by asking those questions, it would surface a lot of insights into a way that things could be done better. I got some notoriety for that uh, with people heavily focusing on my finding that the low-hanging fruit of productivity improvement in legal is just getting people better at the technology they already have that a lot of time was wasted because people are terrible at Word. So you, while you were at Kia, then you developed a tool to help train people with Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, PDFs. Well, I didn't, I actually didn't develop the training tool at Kia. I developed a test because when I told uh, relationship partners that their associates were terrible at Word, they didn't believe me. And as our friend Deming says, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. Yeah. And so, I had to show them. So I, I took tasks that took me less than 20 minutes and gave them to associates and paralegals and secretaries. Your, your average legal professional, what I could do in 20 minutes took over two and a half hours because they had no idea how to use really basic features of common core technologies. And that got a lot of uh, publicity, but it was actually one small piece of a much larger puzzle. I was interested in knowledge management automation, delegation protocols, the use of checklists. Again, thinking about this question of systems, right? How do we leverage expertise through process and technology? Uh, I turned my infamy or notoriety uh, not only into a software company built around the, the technology training that, that came later, but also into a consulting career uh, where I worked mainly with large law departments, but also with some law firms around process re-engineering. And a lot of, and clients sent me to a lot of law firms to continue these site visits. So over the last five years, I've probably spent more time watching lawyers work than just about anybody. And yes, it's as creepy as it sounds. <laughs> so what kind of reaction do you get from, from lawyers generally when you, say, when you ask them to explain their process for doing something? Well, you have to remember that I'm always been there at the behest of the client. Well, 99% of the time I'm there at the behest of the client. So there's the reaction I get and the genuine reaction or not, there's a delta there. Yeah. Sometimes I refer to this as a purple tie exercise. If a client says they like purple <laughs> ties, when the client shows up, everyone's wearing purple ties. Uh, and then when the client leaves, everyone talks about how stupid it is that they had to wear purple ties. So... I've been warmly received where it's a podcast. So you can't see air quotes around warm. People are confused. That's why we're talking about this as opposed to talking about substantive legal issues. Cause that's, yeah. that's what really matters. But once you dig in and I 
for all the firms that I visit, I would write a report to them. And by the way, these reports read the same over and over again. It's they're not snowflakes, right? Uh, <laughs> but when they would see that and you'd have the conversation around the report, I would say 80% of the time there's true recognition of something can be better. Although it firms that are actually able to effectively get better is a much smaller percentage. So for a couple of clients, uh, one of these has been, Jay actually wrote an amazing piece about one of these summits where the firms come and pre present their process improvements. At Microsoft, right? Yes. yes. I tell my clients for those kinds of summits where the firms are improving something, and I've had summits where the improvements have been based on recommendations I've made, you have to be ready for the first summit that a third of them will be genuinely good, a third of them will be genuinely mediocre, and a third of them will be genuinely bad. Uh -huh. And that's okay. Because one of the reasons you wanna have the summit is you want the people who are bad to see the people who are good and, and realize that they can do better. Not yeah. because it's a gotcha moment and you're gonna yeah. get rid of them the next time. These are long-term relationships and you, you wanna find ways to weave continuous improvement into the fabric of the relationship. And creating this transparency and this cadence can really help drive that home because again it's not it's not about gotcha it's not about oh we know you're inefficient so let's 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 ask for a deeper discount it's let's work together on finding ways to improve service delivery knowing that it's never going to be perfect there is no finish line but there's always ways to get better changing that culture in the legal industry is i think one of the biggest problems we have right and this idea of partnering with your outside lawyers and uh you know there's this idea in lean thinking that hard on the process easy on people but in the legal industry it's really just the opposite right i mean it's we don't think about process and we're really hard on people and then people don't end up surfacing mistakes and celebrating them as an opportunity to improve I mean, how do we, I mean, what kind of success have you seen in, in actually kind of changing that culture? It's slow, but it's real. And it, it starts with trust. If there's a really good relationship between the in-house department and the firm, and they say it's okay to not be perfect, but it's not okay not to try, right? You, you have to try and get better. But to, to try and get better, you have to admit that there's actually room for improvement. Uh, and that's very strange because law firms, for understandable reasons, always want to rep represent themselves as perfect in every way. Uh, and I understand that impulse. And so you really need that level of trust. And going back to Toyota, there's great research into uh, their supply chain and deep supplier relationships. And the foundation of it mm -hmm. is a commitment to co-prosperity. Yeah. Our friend Dan Katz likes to refer to law firms and clients as frenemies. And mm -hmm. there's a lot there's so much truth to that because these are long-term relationships that are friendly in a lot of respects and yet there's a lot of mutual distrust and even dislike. And I I don't want to suggest that there there's enemies but there's some animosity and enmity like under the surface uh, that doesn't get resolved and sometimes and oftentimes can metastasize. And we need to get past that in order to work together to get better together. A lot of apartments aren't perfect either. Uh, and, we're, and we're all on the same journey. 
Well, let, let me ask this too. Yeah, so you're been kind of ribbing me a little here about the improvement kata. Now, one of the things I really like about improvement kata is this idea of coaching, right? That in, and we don't teach leadership frequently and management in law school. And uh, you know, lawyers sometimes when they're managed, they feel like they're micromanaged. Or if they're not, if they're not micromanaged, they're just thrown in the ocean and we'll see if you can swim. And if not, I guess you weren't so smart after all, right? But the idea, I think so you're talking about law firm client relations. What about inside of the law firms, right? Can we be applying these principles better inside of the law firms and, and do the law firms have the commitment to, to spend the time coaching and mentoring and developing attorneys with this model. I mean, how much is that a part of the continuous improvement that we need to see across the industry? That's a huge part of it, but that is a thorny problem that I have I have yet to develop a strong opinion on. I know I'm supposed to have strong opinions on everything, <laughs> you know, strong opinions lightly held, but the junior attorney development problem is one that I can't quite wrap my my head around. Because the way we used to do it is we're going to give you garbage work and you're going to do a ton of it, but you're going to start to absorb things by osmosis because you're going to be here all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And over time, we're going to transition you from the menial work, the labor intensive, low value added work to the higher value added work. And there will be, you get lucky if you have a good mentor and that doesn't quite uh, work anymore. We have, even within firms like alternative legal services, uh, staff council, uh, low in, in low cost centers, we're using a lot more automation and other forms of, of technology. We have a lot of clients saying, I will not pay for first years. And I don't know how that changes. So I know that you are right, that that coaching, that mentoring, uh, that giving people room to grow that nurturing environment, psychological safety is absolutely fundamental to what we have to do and uh, will make all of these organizations much higher performing. But I've not done the deep dive and spent the time thinking about it to have real actionable conclusions about where I can smack the table right here and say, <laughs> I know exactly what we do and exactly how firms have to change and how firms are gonna tackle this problem. And by the way, how clients are going to support it. I suspect for clients who don't wanna pay for junior attorneys, move to more appropriate fee arrangements, effective fee arrangements, alternative fee arrangements, whatever, whatever custom fee arrangements, whatever you wanna call them today, where the law firm can build in actually a little bit of inefficiency, right? Because looked at from a certain narrow perspective, training is inefficient. Giving it to someone who is not optimized to deliver whatever it is you're asking them to do because they're learning it is in one sense inefficient and in another sense, that's how learning happens. It, when the law firm has the ability to kind of control their own costs, they can decide to incur that again, air quotes, inefficiency. But that's just, that's one piece of a much larger puzzle that I do not have solved. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about really what you envision the project management function to look like uh, when, let's say you're looking for the future state when project management is fully implemented across a law firm. What does that look like? I mean, who are the people who are the project managers? How are they supporting? Uh, let's talk about litigation, for example. Sarah, we're both li former litigators. So I don't know yet. 
I have uh, a 90 day plan. And at the end of the 90 day plan is to start to develop an actual plan. Yeah. Uh, for what this should look like, future state. I didn't come in predetermined uh, future state. I don't know enough, not necessarily about LPM, but about exactly where it fits in currently at the firm. And I'm, I'm still in learning mode. So what, what I'm about to say is more abstract than, than sure, concrete. Sure. I see two things. I see the use of project managers on large matters and or large portfolios being actively involved in, in day-to-day, making sure that things get done on time, on budget, that they're right-sourced, that we have a, a holistic view in, into the matter and that we're, we're applying some, some rigor and discipline to legal service delivery, again, on time, on budget. And that's kind of a day-to-day activity, uh, but that, that also the project management function does look at process improvement. And so that we're helping advance the firm overall in its, its service delivery capacity even in areas where a project manager is not involved in day-to-day. And so if we're standing up a new process within the firm for how we handle a particular type of litigation, maybe the project manager isn't going to be involved day-to-day on those litigations, but they're going to help the, the litigators who, do, who are set up the checklists, set up the automated system for, for deadlines, set up the, the protocols for... Uh, bringing in the e-discovery team, help them identify what can be sent to lower cost resources, lower cost centers. So it's there's a design and process and service delivery piece. And then there's also day-to-day actual active project management. So, you know, I have a sense that you can go into a lot of law firms and in a lot of type of, of law practice and if we consistently applied process improvement methods, lean, lean thinking, continuous improvement, we could double the productivity and greatly increase the quality of many, many legal matters. What do you think? Uh, I agree with that. I, I don't know if I'm confident enough to put numbers on it, but I always believe there's room for improvement. Always, always, Significant always. improvement probably yeah, in a lot sig- of places. Significant improvement. Now, I, I tend not to think in doubles. I tend to think yeah. 20%, 30%. Okay. But yes, I think there is absolutely room most places. And, and it's not because people are dumb or people are lazy oh, no, or yeah. any of that. It's, as, as I said in the beginning, there's a lot of friction. Mm-hmm. And it's invisible. It seems normal because it's always been done this way. And so... We're doing what we've always done and we've been successful. And it's it's very hard to step back and say, but is that really how we should be doing it now? Is it Bruce McEwen who says this? There's someone who has a great line about law is one of the only professions where if you took someone who practiced it 70 years ago and put them in a time machine and walked them around a law office, 80% of what goes on would still make complete sense to them. Yeah. Like 20% would be like, I don't understand what this glowing box on yeah. your, in your hand and the other one on your desk is. But a huge percentage of it would be uh, familiar. I, I think that's a little bit overstated, but it we, we do worship precedent. And for really good reason, there's a, 
a low tolerance for, for failure and not, I'm not about to launch into a lecture on how we need to fail fast. This is more, failure's really bad. We have low resilience for a reason, legitimate uh, reasons. And so it's, it's challenging to keep the machine running because you need to constantly produce while retooling the machine. Before we continue our interview with Casey Flaherty, we're gonna take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge is the most intelligent legal research platform ever. Powered by state-of-the-art artificial intelligence, Westlaw Edge delivers the fastest answers and the most valuable insights, providing you with a clear strategic advantage The advanced features on Westlaw Edge allow legal professionals to practice with a greater degree of certainty and confidence never before available. Visit westlawedge.com to learn more. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Casey Flaherty, the Director of Legal Project Management at Baker McKenzie. So, Casey, we were talking about process improvement right before we went to the break. Uh, You know, it seems like most firms have a a project management function, but they don't explicitly talk about process improvement. I sometimes wonder if we'd be making more progress if we made an explicit commitment to those as kind of, they're obviously related functions, but as maybe two separate functions inside of organizations. I mean, what do you think kind of about that from your perspective? we, We explicitly have, separate within the team, legal service delivery, which is kind of process improvement from project managers who are doing the day-to-day project management, both valuable, uh, both valid, but we're, we're focused on both. Uh, and we have a big enough team that we can separate them. They're also within uh, Baker, very impressively, there is also a design thinking team that, do, that does innovation. Now those tend to be much bigger projects moving into kind of greenfield or blue ocean, whatever you want to call it. Uh, spaces, not not so much the the day to day that we're focused on. So the the firms committed to it in, in very impressive ways. You said most firms have a project management function. I most that I, do have is I, what I okay because you know, I, I would challenge you on that. The guidebook I wrote for the ACC includes questions on project management and how many project managers do you actually have, yeah. and how can they be involved in our matters and when you dig into the numbers, most firms have very small project management functions relative to their size. I remember a global firm got all kinds of press because they were doubling the size of their PM team. And if you actually read the article, you found out they were going from seven to 13. Mm -hmm. And this is a firm with thousands upon thousands of, of lawyers which kudos to them for, for building out the team, but that's a, that's a global firm. And at the time they had seven. So m- most firms do not actually have project management functions. How many project managers will you have uh, in your group at Baker McKenzie? I'm curious whether I can give exact numbers. So I already have north of 30 okay. and I do not have a complete market survey. As far as I know, that's the largest LPM function uh, there is. There are absolutely plans to to grow the function beyond that. I'm so lucky. 
uh, oh, it's not just lucky. I, I don't know if I would have taken the job if they hadn't already built a robust LPM function and didn't already have plans approved to expand it. And it's not just the LPM function. They have the alternative le- they have alternative legal services in Belfast, and they just announced the the Tampa Center. They have an amazing e-discovery team. They have the innovation team and the design thinking team, et cetera, et cetera. They've made we. I, so I'm thinking they because this is when I was evaluating the firm to join them. Now it's we. It's really impressive how they've invested in all these different functions. And not, you know that's real money. These are real people on the ground. It's not just something that you talk about. So you pointed out earlier that there really aren't that many law firms that are doing project management across the marketplace. There's a growing number of them that that say they're doing it. Um, I think some of those firms, my senses are they're scoping a matter, they're providing a budget, but there's not actually project management help to execute to a plan. There's not a closing of the file where there's a retrospective and reaching out to the client and looking for room to improvement. I mean, what's your sense of kind of uh, how many firms or, or how common it is, I guess, at least maybe just in the marketplace for firms to really truly implement the full stages of project management? My sense of the, of the market is that, that it's extremely rare. And even within the firms that are doing it, it's a low percentage of uh, matters and clients. This is, we are still in the early days of, of LPM because we're in the early days of integrating allied professionals into legal service delivery. Law firms have traditionally been lawyers and staff uh, with a big dividing line between the two. And we're, we're moving into a world with much more focused on integrated business solutions, which re- requires a lot of skills to support the lawyers. The lawyers are still the core. No, there's no question about that. But this is still relatively new, relatively early days, and it's going to take a long time to change the way that, that we do what we do. But that said, we're getting there. We're moving in in that direction in, in taking meaningful, meaningful steps. And now I'm just speaking the industry, obviously I'm not. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, for one, am heartened at the same, same time that I can respond to your question and say, I think it's pretty rare, but we're, we're poised to start doing it. There's a recognition that it's, it's finally time and that it's, it's necessary and not only that it's necessary, but it's useful. Yeah. You know, so you and I chat, have chatted before about this, and I'm going to go here and I'm going to ask this, like, why do we have to call it legal project management? It's project management. I mean, isn't it too much of a tip of the cap to the lawyers? We're special, we're different, that we get to call it legal project management? Seems like it works fine in every other industry vertical just to call it project management. I saw NASA as hiring project managers. Nothing so special about going and, you know, building rockets that you have to have you know, a different kind of project manager. Can't we just have project management and legal? And might that actually help for adoption if we just called it project management? So I'm I'm absolutely fine with that. I wasn't there when the term was when they coined the term. <laughs> that said, this is not the hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just think of it as project management applied to legal, because okay. project management can be applied to anything that has projects, and legal is just one of yeah, well, yeah, any industry that that has projects. I'd be curious as to what the origin of the term is and why. 
we had to call it that. Like I'm a, I'm a lean Six Sigma black belt. I didn't have to go and do legal lean Six Sigma <laughs> black belt, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know why we call it that, but we do. Uh, and it's in the lexicon. And if you say legal project management or LPM, most people have some sense of what you're talking about. Whereas oddly, if you say project management, they'll look at you sideways or a bit strange. So if, if you are able to change that, I am on board. <laughs> All right. Like I'll, I'll sign right. a petition. Uh, I'll put a tweet out, but I'm certainly not going to in my day-to-day -day interactions correct people and say, no, no, we're not calling it LPM. We're, especially because it's literally in my title. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going go to the, <laughs> go to the firm and say, no, no, no. I'm going to be director of project management, not legal project management. Uh, yeah. I'm right. still trying to find the bathroom. Uh, I, I don't, I don't okay. need to get in the fight with anyone right. over the ti yeah. title. So when we think about, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion about technology. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to get people to think about is before we get to implementing technology, you know, people process data technology frequently the way I talk about it. How much of what you'll be doing in project management is kind of with an eye on kind of setting the stage for looking for opportunities to introduce technology as well? Like, I mean, what's your relationship there with thinking about the way matters are, are managed and, and introducing technology? That's a, a huge part of it. So we as a function are certainly going to be automating much of what we do. And part of the way I will be reviewing the performance of my team is their ability to identify places to introduce technology to make sure that people are being put to their highest and best use. Technology can do some amazing things, but what it does best right now is replace high volume, uh, labor intensive, low value added tasks. A lot of administrative tasks, a lot of meaning, I, I don't know quite menial, but la definitely labor intensive. And LPM should be plugged in to all of the opportunities to replace that. And again, it's an area where a lot of people have made a lot of, a lot of progress. We're seeing a lot more of it in say, contract abstraction, following in the footsteps of e-discovery. So we've started to see automation even in things like time entry, mm -hmm. thankfully, yeah, which is yeah. something everyone hates to do. Uh -huh. So it, yes, 100, 100%. Our value add is not just on day-to-day -day helping to manage projects, but in the long term, it's changing the way people work, making their experience as a lawyer better, making and maximizing the yield uh, from a value perspective of, of what they do. So I want to seize on what you said about making their experience as a lawyer better. One of the things when I was at Michigan State and we had legal R&D, the Center for Legal Services Innovation, uh, one of the things we inspire, aspired to do is was our belief that with better process control, better project management, that we could actually help solve some of the problems of uh, proper allocation of work inside of law firms, which could have a contribution to better work-life balance, could help you work on your diversity problems, have, have impacts in, in those spaces as well. I mean, what do you think? Is that, are we... We have data that suggests that young lawyers are the most miserable professionals in the United States. 
that lawyers are the loneliest workers in the United States and that law is literally the most boring job in the world. I just saw our friend Joe Patrice walk by and I, I don't know if he wrote it, but he was on Above the Law. They're on Above the Law, they said, uh, you know, we finally have evidence that law is the most boring job in the world. That's sad because most of the lawyers I know are brilliant and hardworking and have so much to contribute. Uh, and yet they're miserable because a fair percentage of their lives is spent doing things that don't take advantage of their talents. And that to me is tragic. And leave aside, you know, the billable hour and cost, just talented people not applying their talents, doing work that has to be done. It's necessary, but it's low value add. If we can eliminate that, we can make their lives so much better. We can improve the quality of work at the same time that we're improving quality of life. And that, that makes a big difference to me. I, this journey started for me as a young associate who loved being a lawyer and hated a healthy percentage of what I spent my time doing. Our friend Jason Barnwell of Microsoft just wrote a great piece on legal evolution about his early days as an associate, not believing how much the firm was being paid for him to make copies and how unreceptive the firm was to, he was a coder coming out of MIT, how unreceptive they were to this thing that he was doing that was menial that he could have automated. That's not surprising to anyone. And yet I really feel like those attitudes have shifted remarkably, especially in the last five years. The partners I, I talked to, and it's not just at uh, my new firm. Again, I was doing site visits for clients before this. There's been a, a real shift in, in perspective and clients have, clients have been a big part of that, but there's also been a kind of a, a new generation of, of law firm leader that for lack of a better uh, term gets it. So o overall, I'm, I'm hopeful. I have, I always have plenty to complain about. I'm a pro professional complainer, but in general, directionally, it's it's good times for people like us who are interested in things like this. Well, how do we get more people interested in, in these things? I mean, I, I still talk to too many lawyers who have never heard of clock. They say, well, what's clock? Like, they don't really know kind of how corporate legal departments are changing, things like that. When you start talking to them about these things, they say, wait, Dan, you don't understand. I bill hours. You make me more efficient, I lose revenue, right? Just, I mean, we've heard these things for a long time. What are some of the things we can do to accelerate adoption across the marketplace? And, you know, this is the other part of it, what we were just talking about previously, that should get us fired up about, about hey, there's, there's a bigger purpose for doing these things. We can better serve our clients, more people. There's a lot of reasons, I think, to get people excited. How do we tap into the, all of that? Uh, well, the number one way is clients. Clients are the urgency drivers in this industry. How do you define value? Value is what the customer is willing to pay for. And how clients behave is going to be the primary factor in changing behavior and, and perspective. But the other thing is you have to come in with a compelling story that you're going to make someone's life better. And yeah. Life better yeah. can be because I'm delivering superior quality. It can be I'm doing it faster. I'm more consistent. 
I'm saving my clients money. I'm upping my profitability. There, there are lots of ways to look at improvement, but one of the mistakes, and I'm as guilty as anyone, is when you approach people and simply tell them they're doing it wrong. Yeah. And suggest to them that they're some combination of stupid, lazy, and, or greedy. They're they're going to shut down uh, yeah. pretty yeah. quick. Whereas you, if you start with some empathy. Yeah. And from their perspective and can help identify pain points. Yeah. Then yes, you can communicate it. Now that's though that's one to one, right? That's that's retail politics. Mhm. Systemically, I'm not sure how to do it other than clients or in larger firms high impact, high visibility. If you are working with members of various committees, on the largest accounts or the most profitable accounts for the firm and you are making a material measurable contribution that gets around one of the mistakes that people often make is they focus on the most troubled accounts like let's take <laughs> let's take the work that is it's the most challenged and try and get better at it and Oddly, we we tend to ignore that which is going well. And yet, if you take that which is going well and you make it better, you can have a much more profound impact than when you take something that is going poorly and might make it slightly less bad. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's another thing that I think is interesting sometimes when people talk about this. They think it's just about commodity work and race to the bottom. And they suggest that the, the bet the company work, that's, oh, well... We don't need project management. and pro It's like, wouldn't we actually need even more than that? Because if it really matters, then we should be using, improving our processes and using really strong project management. And that's why you start with the focus on quality. But yes, we want to uh, reduce costs. Absolutely. But if your primary uh, sales pitch is, we're going to cut spend. It sounds like you're trying to do it. You're trying to do it on the cheap. And that is not true, right? It starts with quality, quality, consistency, speed, cost savings need to be talked about. But if it's all you can eat sushi for $5, <laughs> that sounds bad. You know, I want to seize on, you mentioned empathy. And I think empathy is at risk of becoming a buzzword like other things. And to me, I hear people complaining, frankly, oh, the lawyers, we built this, they won't use it, they won't adopt it. I mean, I think there's an engagement problem that's not being acknowledged there. When you explained to me earlier what you were doing, going to Gemba, spending time with people, I mean, isn't that a part of what we need to? A lot more of that, like spending time with the lawyers, learning what their real pain points are, that they're going to suddenly be interested in what Casey Flaherty's selling? Yeah, well, because you, you stop speaking to them in generalities. And you can point to specific things they do day to day and show them how that thing can be better. You contextualize it and you make it concrete in the ways that just general, hey, project management will help you. Well, what does that even mean, project management will help you? But if you say, here are 10 things that you do every week, half of them can go to a resource who is going to do it better and the other half can be automated that's a completely different conversation than the generic, hey, project management will help. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Unless You Ask, which I think is a really great resource. I've had uh, 
students in my classes read that. One of the things I really like there is we, there's a lot of focus on data analytics now, which I think is great. And I think we're going to do really big things with data analytics. But people are trying to run when they can't even crawl or walk, right? I mean, I think you were talking about collecting small data and at least being able to show someone the interquartile range of outcomes for particular matters or something like that. I mean, what's your sense out of the AMLA 200? How many firms are even just doing something basic like that, that they could tell you their last 10 litigation matters, what it settled at or, or verdict was, what their early case assessment was, basic data like that. My sense is it is actually improving. Yeah. And this is one of those places where I've been skeptical of the, uh, we're doing big data because no, you're not. <laughs> and it's all going to be AI and machine learning. Well, some of it is, but a lot of it isn't. Like really what you want is most of the time is clean data and some basic regression analysis, right? Yeah. When you're saying AI, you actually just want the AI to clean your data so you can do some pretty rudimentary analysis. But this is where the hype has helped because people have tried to take on these big projects and they realize just how bad their data is. Yeah. And they yeah. have started to clean it up. Now they're not there. Very few firms are there, but there's real effort to start moving in in that direction and it's it's heartening but it's another one of those things where at the front end of a of a maturity curve but at least we're moving in the in the right direction a lot of these things if you'd asked about 5 years ago it was just talk then now there there is real action and even if it's not as satisfying as we'd like it to be i've been impressed with how much effort has gone into it because people in trying to do the big splashy thing are starting to realize their foundational issues, their structural issues that they have to, they have to address. So where do you think are the, you know, my sense is that we've got a lot of these basic foundational things to do, but even with the current technology we have right now, there's a lot of potential to be able to automate different tasks, certainly use data to make better predictions than kind of the, the anecdata and the intuitions we apply now. Where do you think are, are some of the safer places to make bets that we're going to see kind of radical transformation of, of components of law practice? Uh, in? You're, you're talking about safe bets and radical transformation in the same. What, what is the safe bet on radical well, transformation? Some of it's we're already seeing, right? Like we just you saw, I just interviewed the folks at LegalMation, right? And now what types of work that'll end up being applied to, but they're already applying to a lot of different work. That to me, I know maybe you wouldn't call that radical transformation, but it certainly is changing dramatically a piece of what litigators have done in the past. Yeah, I, I really like legalmation, but it's it's crazy. It's crazy to me. I love that they you know they have the neural net to add structure to unstructured data, and then now that it's structured, that it's in fields in a database, they can then use it to populate uh, templates. Well, the second part of that is basic document automation that we've had for 30 or 40 years. The first part of it is something that a human could do at a pretty low cost, like a paralegal, an offshore resource. For, so for 30 or 40 years, you could have had someone sit there and look at a complaint and enter things into a, a database. Is it gonna be as fast as LegalMation? Absolutely not. But won't be as high quality. I guess I would quibble a little bit with the idea that it's just like a template on the back end. I mean, that's not uh, that's not, not that that's no. But we've had we have pretty sophisticated document automation technology, and we've have we have for quite some time. And look, I like what they do, but it's crazy that we never did the intermediate thing. 
right? The intermediate yeah, sure, thing. Sure, sure. There's lots where of steps. It's like, in oh, we got a complaint in here. Let's yeah. give it to this person who does intake. Yeah. They're going right. to enter all of this. And I've seen it at some firms, but most firms. And then, and now we have a database and we have all of these templates that are attached to the database and we can generate it. That software has existed forever. You ask firms, they say, we have it. What happened? They have no discipline around intake. They have no discipline about, around template upkeep. And it just falls by the wayside and people go back to copy and paste, you know, pull up the last one, the last one you did. And to me, that's the radical transformation isn't the technology piece. It's a discipline and the rigor yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to do these things that we could have done uh, long, long ago. Like a lot of this, these analytics, yes, new technology makes it better. It certainly makes it prettier. I love the data biz stuff. But it starts with basic data integrity and having good data hygiene practices that we could have done for years. Yeah. yeah. For years and years and years, but we we haven't. And so I'm excited about that technology, but I'm much more interested in kind of the discipline and rigor. Yeah. Well, I, I maybe am a little more bullish in the technology than you are, the capabilities, even as it exists currently. But I agree completely that I think uh, there's so much basic stuff we can be doing. And in fact, if we really want to empower those tools, it's basic data science. And it's all about the data at the beginning. And and yeah, I think a lot of the data people talked about is garbage. Yeah, there's a lot of missing data. We're not actually tracking the things we would need to track. And so getting more discipline and putting together better uh, data repositories, having that uh, data that we need at the beginning, it's going to open up a lot of additional possibilities. All right. Well, hey, Casey, it's been great talking to you here at Legal Week in New York. And this has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.